Welcome to an enlightening episode featuring Keith Ellison live at the square. And what an amazing experience it was. Special thanks to Mary at Strive Bookstore for being a part of this book signing event. Keith Ellison's book, Break the Wheel, is available now, so get your copy today. To listen and watch the full live show, follow our host, Shonda Smith-Baker, on social media. That's Instagram or Twitter, at Shonda S. Baker, C-H-A-N-D-A-S Baker. And the link to watch is in the bio. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shanta Smith-Baker. I wanted to ask to share Galloway to just come up and share just a few minutes of words before Keith and I jump into this conversation. I'm the founder of an organization called Families Supporting Families Against Police Violence and it supports families that have lost loved ones at the hands of law enforcement here in the state of Minnesota. George Floyd was the face of hundreds of black men that have been stolen here in the state of Minnesota at the hands of law enforcement. Derek Chauvin is the face of many police officers that have patrolled our communities and the father of my son, Justin Tigan, was my George Floyd because on August 19, he was found dead, apparently brutally beaten all over, um, and he was found in a recycling facility after he did run on foot from St. Paul Police in August 19, 2009. But when I first came forward with my story to Keith, he encouraged me to bring other families with me to come and speak with him. And he listened to our stories. He listened to our realities that we live right here in the state of Minnesota. And when George Floyd happened, he stepped up and he took a very hard role in our community. He then again did the same thing when Dante Wright was murdered two of the biggest uprisings in history. He was the attorney general that held these two officers accountable. One thing he always says is I wanna do the right thing and I wanna follow the law. And so, he is a black man. He is a man, he is a human being that is trying and it says in the Bible, God bless the man who tries. So I encourage you all to read this book. And um, I'm excited for him and this journey and for my sister Shonda as well. Thank you. So uh, before we jump in on the book, again, thank you for joining us in this conversation. I want to start out perhaps when, when I first met Tashira since she started us off, which was when uh, Keith and um, the commissioner of public, see you're smiling already, she's smiling y'all, you can't, um, um, brought us together for a task force um, to look at police deadly force. And um, our very first day we were protested, you remember that? Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a tough day, was it not? And um, I think we were protested for about three hours. And it was a moment that I decided I could never 
be attorney general or anything, <laughs> anything in the elected body because it was, it was rough. And Tashira was right in there holding us to task. And um, it was um, hard work. It was hard work, but it was hard work because we were all there in 2019, 2020, 2019 into 2020, I think we concluded in March because we were working together across the state, going around listening to family stories across the state that had been impacted by police violence. It was hard to do. And I want to know why did you decide to do that? Thank you, Shonda, for, for that question and to share a thank you. And uh, to answer your question, I'll just say, if you look in the acknowledgments, I, um, I put in here, I thank all the activists who organized and led marches and demonstrations and raised awareness. Among them, the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, activists like Tashira Garraway, Michelle Gross, Eli Darris, and others. I thank the activists who taught me the importance of grassroots advocacy like Chris Nissen, who you remember, Mel Reeves, Kimberly Washington, Garments Parks, and elders like Spike Moss, Mahmoud El-Khati, Tyrone Terrell. I mentioned those folks because, um, first of all, don't be mad at me if I didn't mention you. I do mean you. They're representing you. These folks who I named are representing you. Uh, because you really can't get anywhere without uh, the people. You cannot do it. It will not happen. I wouldn't have been assigned this case without the people. And the incident you're mentioning, which was, we started that a year before George Floyd was murdered out that, out that door over there. A year before, before. And why do I emphasize before? Because there have been so many uh, tragic incidents followed by a protests, followed by investigative committees, followed by recommendations, followed by inaction. So we did not want to start. I, so I'm like, look, I'm the, first, um, I, I'm the first person with my set of experiences doing this job. And uh, I'm going to join with community, including, uh, you know, the, the folks on the committee to try to to try to do something about this problem outside of a tragic incident. Why do we always react to the tragic incident? Let's try to do it outside of the incident. If you have power, and I will tell you this, um, a lot of people on the political left have a discomfort with power, because power is generally used to oppress people. So they don't, they don't like power. But actually, power is neither good nor bad. It's a matter of how you use it. And you all empowered me to be attorney general, so. I decide I'm going to use my power to reach out to my powerful friend in the philanthropy world, and we're going to generate meaningful dialogue for people. And you know, quite honestly, I thank God that those guys protested us on the first day of the thing. And I'm going to tell you why. It didn't feel good at the time. But it, it, it really did set the tone for this work we were doing being absolutely deadly serious nothing to play with, and if you're here just to perform and act like you care, but you really don't, you're in the wrong place. Yeah. 
And you know what I remember the most about that day from my experience is that, I mean, they were protesting and we got up for a break and I caught Tashira's eyes and we gave each other a hug because she wasn't protesting us. It was a protest of the system. And that's what we represented. And we were at the table, Keith, and you decided that that task team was gonna be made up of people that were systems players and community. Yeah. And there were a number of people that represented the police yeah. and the union. That was also a very tough dynamic. And so we are at a time where people sit at tables with people they agree with and move away from tables where they do not politically align. Can you also share what the strategy was on that? And again, we're talking about a task force we pulled together a year before the tragic incident that took the life of George Floyd, before. Why do we have a, a mixed group? People who have monumental credibility in community, you know, people like yourself, people like Eli, others, and people who represent police organizations. The answer is very simple. You can make a point or you can make a difference. And I know I've been in the legislature, I've been in Congress, and I know absolutely without a doubt that if you try to move police reform without involving police, all they're gonna do is show up and attack your bill and it's not going anywhere. So why not bring people into the conversation on the front end, have the difficult conversation, have hammer it out, fight it out, slug it out, and then see if we can come up with something that we all can agree on. Um, because I happen to know a lot of people who are police who uh, join the force to help people. That was their motivation. And, um, I know many of them, when they, when they put that badge on protect and serve, they mean it. I also know there's a lot who don't mean it. I also know that Derek Chauvin had 18 excessive force complaints, and he was not the top 10. You understand what I'm saying? He wasn't top 10. He wasn't top 10. In the book, you wrote that Derek... Um, I believe had been on the force for 19 years right. and never had been promoted. No, he, but, he, but he did get the honor of being a field training officer, which means that he was training people. Look, here's the thing about, have you all ever heard of a, of a writer by the name of uh, Hannah Arndt? Hannah Arndt. She wrote, she, she would write about, she used to coin the phrase, the banality of evil. What does the word banal or banality mean? It means ordinary. If you are looking for the devil to have red skin and a tail and cloven hooves looking terrifying, you are looking in the wrong place. If the devil ever shows up on earth, he's going to be in a very nice tailored three-piece suit looking, looking smooth and nice. Derek Chauvin was not particularly wicked, and that's the true, and that should terrify you. Because if he was really, really wicked, and he looked wicked, and he, we can say, oh, he's wicked. But he looked ordinary and plain. And I remember sitting in that courtroom looking over at him thinking, that's the guy. 140 pounds, not particularly any hateful look on his face. 
he probably would say, I was just doing my job, which is another way of saying, my job is to be an instrument of oppression. You know who else would say I'm doing my job? People who were making sure that the enslaved people were running away from the plantations. This is what my job. You don't want me to do, this is my job. But we've gotta change that job. And the job needs to be truly protecting and serving and protecting the community, not making sure people are terrified in their own neighborhood. There were a number of extraordinary things that happened um, and surprising after, during, that led up to. There were people that said he was evil and they came in the form of complaints that went nowhere. That's right. Um, after the murder, there were um, false reports on what occurred that evening. That's right. But then we had our police chief that acted immediate in terms of firing the four officers and coming out with, with statements. He, by the way, was on that task force with us. He was. Um, he wanted to reform and hold accountable the police department. The police department, by the way, that he sued. Yeah, for racial discrimination. Um, and then um, ascended into top role. And so here you are, the first of your demographic in the statewide um, elected role with our first black commissioner of public safety and a black police chief all lined up for all to be good and all went bad. Yeah, and, and so it tells you it's, a, it's not only a question of melanin, right? Um, just putting black people in positions of power doesn't fix everything. And, and uh, certainly we know that white people who've, who've been in power have done great things. Um, Viola Liuzzo is a white woman and she helped in uh, segregation in Alabama. Uh, but at the same time, those four five black officers who killed Tyree Nichols, they're African-American officers. Is there a racist dynamic here? Of course there is. Is it just so simple as just melanin? No, it isn't. It's way more complicated than that. And, uh, and so my thought is if you ever find yourself in a position of power and everybody in this room is in a position of power, you've gotta do good with it or you don't supposed to be there or at least you have to do your best. What we don't want is people just occupying a space. But I, did, I do wanna highlight those, the people who did things extraordinary. All I did is my job. Isn't it interesting? I got a lot of positive feedback from people because I just did what I was supposed to do. But there are people who went beyond the call. Can I read about them? Go ahead and read about them. No, go ahead. 185. Shortly after Governor Walls assigned me the case in, 2000, in June 2020, I was in Detroit visiting my 94-year-old father, Leonard Ellison, and my two older brothers, Leonard Jr. and Brian. Brian is an ordained minister and a pastor. He picked me up at the airport, and as we often do, we stopped for a little lunch at the Big Boy, a local chain in Michigan. After we made small talk with the hostess, a teenager wearing a COVID mask with rhinestones on it, Brian asked me to tell him what I could about the case. There was a lot I couldn't share, but there were some things I could. As we were sitting there in the booth, in the restaurant, Brian held his chin. 
contemplating something, he said, you say none of them knew him, huh? Referring to the witnesses and Floyd. Nope, none of them knew him, I said, munching on french fries. So why did they start yelling at the cops to stop? Brian asked. They thought it was the right thing to do, I guess, I said. So they stepped forward to protest what was happening to someone they didn't know, someone they could have assumed the worst about, and took video of the cops as the cops were on top of him like that? Yup. Wow. They could have been arrested or beaten themselves, I suppose. Some cops might even still retaliate. Ain't heard of, you know. Yeah, that's true. Then Brian said, it's a modern reenactment of the story of the Good Samaritan. I paused. Huh? What do you mean, Rev? You can't understand the story of the Good Samaritan, said Preacher Brian, unless you understand that Jews and Samaritans considered each other heretics at the time. Both groups recognized Abraham as their father, but they had different beliefs, which led to conflict, including violence, destruction of holy sites, and more. Brian went on. You can't understand the story without understanding that the injured man on the roadside and the Samaritan were in conflicting groups. I started to pick up what Reverend Brian was laying down. He went on. So as you know, the Samaritan saw the injured man lying on the roadside. Two men walked past the injured man. One was a priest and another a Levite, both learned and moral men, trained in religion and law. Neither one of them helped. They had their reasons, but they didn't help. The Samaritan helped. He dressed the man's wounds, loaded him on the back of a donkey, and delivered the injured man to an inn. When he reached the inn, the Samaritan paid the innkeeper for the night and asked him to check on the injured man throughout the night. The Samaritan promised to reimburse the innkeeper for any extra expenses when he returned. Brian repeated his point. What these people, these bystanders did, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. George Floyd, in the eyes of some people in this world, is the other, Brian said. Brian was right about this. Not more than a few days after Floyd's death, well-known pundit Candace Owens tweeted a harsh denunciation for the deceased George Floyd, which went viral. We've turned George Floyd, a criminal drug addict, into an icon, she said. She wasn't alone. A chorus of critics illuminated Floyd's mistakes and addictions to justify what Chauvin did to him and to protect the status quo, to keep the wheel spinning. He went on. In the eyes of some, he was nothing but a big black thug with a drug problem who tried to cheat the store with a fake bill. He's the ultimate other who is outside our circle of compassion. But like the Samaritan, the bystanders never judged him. They did what they could to help him. They witnessed his martyrdom, and they tried to help. Brian took another fry and thoughtfully continued. He said that Chauvin, Lane, King, and Tao were like the Levite and the priest. They had a duty. They had training. They had the ability to help the suffering man, but they didn't help. They caused the suffering. It was their job to protect Floyd, especially if he was on drugs, but they did nothing. Quite frankly, they did worse than nothing. Yeah, I said, I see your point. The Samaritan didn't ask the injured man whether he had a criminal record, whether he had been drinking alcohol or taking dope. Brian took a sip of coffee. The Samaritan asked whether the injured man needed help, and that's all he needed to know.
So you go on in the book to say that that conversation that day with Brian informed some of the strategy that you had, the legal strategy. Can you share how so? Yeah, Shonda, let me tell you, every criminal case, every case, civil or criminal, can, when you're telling the story to a jury, you can, there's an infinite number of places to start. We could have started in the store. We could have started at the arrest. We could have started when George Floyd was leaning against the dragon walk. We decided to start where the bystanders started. That's where we decided, this is where this case has to start. We're not gonna drag the jury through a bunch of boring stuff. We're gonna get right to the heart of the matter and start when George Floyd was pulled out of that car and they leaned on top of his body that way and people began to notice and George Floyd called for his life, asked to breathe, called for his mother, said, they're gonna kill me. And then slowly his, his, his protestations began to get thicker and further apart and further apart until at about the three minute and 50 second mark, he stops talking. And then the, 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 the people on the, on the bystanders start, start really raising their voices. One of the things that uh, Tao said to uh, the people, if he's talking, if he's talking, he can breathe, which is medically wrong, which is medically incorrect. But then after he stops talking, one young woman, young white woman says, he's not talking now. He's not talking now. And you can hear her voice on that tape. And then you see, you know, Donna Williams. Who and, I, and by the way, did y'all know that I've, I've known Donald Williams his whole life? Donald Williams used to wrestle at Fairview Park with my kids, not too far from you, maybe. And, and, and so when I saw him, I was like, I, I recognize that kid. I hadn't seen him since he was a little boy. But I, I knew I knew him, and then I remembered where from. So we started that that point is because what is the case really all about in terms of proving murder. We needed to prove murder. We needed to, and we knew that they were going to attack George Floyd's character. They're going to say that anything other than that knee on the neck killed him. And we needed to convince the jury that those randomly selected people who just happened to be at the corner store at 8 o'clock on Memorial Day 2020, that what they saw is what was in fact happening. We knew the, the defense was going to say, don't, leave, don't believe your lying eyes, believe me. But we needed the jury, which was also randomly selected, to identify with those people on that corner who were randomly selected. And we knew that if these people, and that's why we, had, we did not allow the defense to say a mob, a crowd, an unruly mob. We said, unruly mob? Well, that's why we brought each one of them up and said, did they seem unruly to you? And you notice how none of them could get on that stand, testify, and get off the stand without crying. And I'm going to tell you, Donald Williams is a young brother, like any one of them in this room. You know, if you're, I mean, one thing that, it's not okay to be a young black man and to be viewed as soft. That, that might be wrong or right, but it's, but it's a fact. You've got to show tough. 
And every one of y'all know I'm saying the truth. But, that, but Donna Williams couldn't stop. He, had, he was in tears. 61-year-old Charles McMillan was in tears. Genevieve Hansen, a trained firefighter, in tears. A year later, I wanted to, some people said, well, why did you call the nine-year-old girl? Because she was there, and she saw what happened. And let me ask you this. After all the adults got arrested in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1962, 63, there wasn't nobody but kids left. And you know what James Bevel and Martin Luther King said? Kids going to protest. And why shouldn't they? Are they not subject to segregation laws? Are their lives, their very lives, not restricted by these unfair, unjust system? Let he who is oppressed participate in their own liberation. So we put her on the witness stand. And I only had one point I was trying to make. If a nine-year-old girl can tell that George Floyd was in distress and needed help, these four people trained to help also should know. The academy, which all four of them went through, should not make you stupider. You should know more about policing and more about public safety and health and medical distress than a nine-year-old kid. And, they, and that's one reason why they fought to keep that, to keep Judea out of the, out of, off the witness stand in the federal trial. I was not trying to evoke heartstrings. I was not trying to appeal. I was just trying to show the reality of what goes on. Because I'm going to tell you, Judea Reynolds, she was nine then. She's 12 now. When she's 29, 39, when she has her own kids, she will never forget what she saw. And these bystanders prove something that people, ordinary people, regular people, randomly selected, can do extraordinary things and do great acts of courage. And that's what's needed to make us prevail. Now, there's no way anybody could say Toshira is ordinary in any possible way. She's extraordinary in every way. But when she lost her dearest one, she was just a young mom, you know, right? That's all. And so now here you are shaking the nation Judea, by the way, has partnered with folks and has written her own book called A Walk to the Store. Beautiful. And um, there's nothing. I was so proud. I actually ran into her as she had did her first interview, and she signed my copy of the book. And when you think about the trauma, um, and as I was reading your book, Keith, I was wondering how you made it through that trial and um, your team during that witness testimony because it was hard to watch. I can't even imagine being in the courtroom. And so did you guys have a practice or were you so focused on just getting to the end? Like what did that look like for you and that team? We practiced a lot. We practiced like we were on an athletic team because, you know, if you, if you do something and then before you have to do something, you work out the emotional kinks so that when it gets to the moment of truth, you've already kind of gone through it a little bit. So we practiced, we practiced J Jerry's opening. We practiced his closing. We practiced Steve Slisher's closing. We practiced... We did mock trials. We got some, we paid people a few bucks 
to just listen to the evidence, which was already in the news, everybody knew it, and we got Steve Slisher to play the defense counsel and said, be fierce, fierce, fierce. Don't give nobody no quarter, no how. I want you to act like you are out to acquit these people. And he did his job. And we, uh, because, because we were in it to win it. Two blocks that way, in 1998, I represented a young fella named Lawrence Miles. And me and my law partners, some of y'all know Larry Reed, I know, I know Bill knows Larry and Jeff Hassan. We, Lawrence Miles was shot in the back at 15 years old, in the back, in the back, straight up. We took, we sued his case out because in those days, a criminal trial was unthinkable, unthinkable. And so we sued. The, the city of Minneapolis didn't offer us anything. And then the officer said, well, I thought I was in danger for my life. And they, they, they ruled in favor of the, of the defendant officer who we were suing. So we lost that case. And that meant not only did Lawrence Miles uh, have debilitating injuries for life, but he didn't have any financial wherewithal to even get them treated. Uh, my point is that I had losses before I had wins. Do you understand what I mean? I had, I got some scars. <laughs> yeah, okay, and so let's go with the losses for a second um, because there's a documentary out called Two Trials. And the Two Trials documentary, um, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It basically looks at the Attorney General's role, what the differences were between the George Floyd case and the Breonna Taylor case. Right. So, there's a lot of people that have your role, but there's a number, there's what, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of, well, there, there's 50 attorney generals across the country. <laughs> and everybody ain't winning and everyone's not doing what you did. So there is something that I think you have to own. There's a level of courage that was required for you to take on the case in the way that you did. I would say faith. Say more. I'm not a particularly courageous person. I'm not braver than anyone. But I just believe that my, I'm, look, I, for everybody who is an atheist or agnostic, bless you, no problem, we can be friends. I believe my destiny is with my maker. That's what I believe. And so it wasn't, it, was, if, if, it wasn't of me. It wasn't like I'm so brave and I'm gonna kick butt and take names. It was like, I'm putting this all in your hands, divine one. In my religion, we say Allah. Yours, you say Jesus. It, it doesn't really matter. And, and so we just marched forward. And I didn't know we were going to win. I didn't know whether we were going to win until the judge read the verdict form. And all y'all exploded. I had no idea whether we were going to win. Did I hope? Yes, I didn't know. In fact, I was prepared for not winning. What I really, really wanted is for everybody to know that we did our very best. And that's what I was trying to do, our very best, because we can control that. We can't control the outcome. But it wasn't courage so much as it was, is, is faith in just saying, 
we're going to lay it all out here and pray for a good outcome. And if we get it, good. And if we don't, then that's, then we did the best we could. Yeah. In the middle of the heaviness of, of the trial, um, Dante Wright was murdered and Adam Toledo in Chicago, um, a, young, a young man running from the police. Right. Um, you know, I've been in, in space and many of us have been in space of working really hard to make a difference. And then in the midst of it, you wonder if you're making a difference because things continue to move. Right. Did you feel that in the middle? Because you showed up yet for that family. And while you were showing up for Dante Wright's family, you were bringing in Eric Garner's family. And um, the, the community that has been pained by police violence is so present. Right. It's true. So, you know, look, here, here's what I know. The first documented investigative report about police brutality was from the University of Chicago in 1919. Back in 1919, there were black folks who were living in Chicago who went to swim in the Lake Michigan. And as a result of that, uh, one of the kids floated into the area designated for whites only and some tough ruffians threw rocks, made him fall off, and then he drowned. And so then some African-American adults said, hey, officer, you ain't gonna let them get away with that, are you? And the officer says, boy, if you don't get out of my face, you're gonna be drowned like him. And that started civil unrest, called, known as the Chicago riots. What it really was is an act of police brutality in which people asked for somebody to be brought to justice. Uh, a lot of African-Americans were killed, some whites were too, uh, but then Chicago wrote an investigative study, came up with all these recommendations around poor housing, poor this, poor that, and unfair policing conditions. Well, then there was another one, same situation, investigative report in, in, in Harlem in 1935, then another one in Harlem in 1943. Then you had the Kerner Commission report, Bill knows all about that, where uh, you, know, you had Senator Kerner where Johnson, President Johnson said, study all of this civil unrest, and then they go ahead and study the LA riot, the LA you know, unrest, uh, and, and, and then you know, that's the Kerner Commission, which says, look, this is always sparked by a tragic incident between police and community. Then you have the Rodney King Christopher Report. Then you have the 21st century policing, which is in the aftermath of Ferguson. When we talk about this stuff, we talk about it as if it's one bad situation, one bad situation, one bad situation. You've got to add all of them up and ask yourself, what is going on? Well, here's what's going on. We have a, we have a vertical system of racial hierarchy. We have a system of racial hierarchy. And in order to keep people in their place, we use a lot of things, housing, education, nutrition, health, and police, all to maintain a certain all to privilege one class vis-a-vis another. And it's been going on since slavery days and it's going on right now. And so that is what's happening. The real color dynamic is not necessarily the, 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 the pigmentation because what's really happening is the blue, the state power mobilized to maintain an unjust social 
order. And that's why people in Edinburgh, Scotland, London, England, Medellin, Colombia, Lagos, Nigeria, Frankfurt, Germany, all came out. Did you notice how they came out everywhere? Because they are familiar with official state abuse of authority against unarmed people. Does anybody remember the picture of this one man facing all these tanks in Tiananmen Square? This, how many of y'all speak Mandarin? Like basically nobody, but when you, one person. But when you saw that picture, did you need to speak Mandarin? State power against the one individual. So what we're struggling to do is to make sure that people can be who they are, that the state will not be used to suppress, depress, and oppress people just because of their race or their political beliefs or their religion or their view of the world. I mean, remember, Stonewall was about police brutality. You understand what I'm saying? The state will be used to justify and to maintain an unjust social order. Uh, when, 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 when John Lewis was arrested, he wasn't arrested by a baker, and he wasn't arrested by a plumber. He was arrested by a police officer. When Sheriff Clark sent those people to beat the folks walking over Edmund Pettus Bridge, who led the charge? Police. It's to me, it, it, it's not, and at some level, these people are being used too. Yeah, but Keith, so yes, yes and. Yes what, and. Yes and, what is the role of judges? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Can we talk about that? Can we talk, let's talk about well, it. Let's talk about it, what is the role of judges? Well, here's the thing. We're always targeted, focus our attention on the police. Because that is who pulled the trigger, that is who kneeled on the neck, that is, that's that. But let me tell you, it takes an entire apparatus. I wanna talk about judges, but let me start with the, with the media. The first media press release about this tragic incident was from the MPD information office, which said, an inebriated person died in a um, medical incident. So what if there was no video from, uh, from Darnella Frazier? Then we are believing, oh, he died in a medical incident. Maybe people don't start pulling that videotape from other places. So that's, so we, so that's one part. But then the law. The law in this area, um, I mean, judge, I, I, judges may, are, are, here's an example of judges. So there were, two federal, there were two federal judges involved in this whole thing. One of them was operating, managing the, the grand jury, the federal grand jury. We needed some information, and so we filed the proper documents, but we were not allowed to share any information and folks, we never did. The grand jury's secret. We got the information with a signed federal court order. It said, do not reveal this. We never revealed this. That judge, because there was a news story that we had nothing to do with, y'all don't know this, this judge ordered an FBI investigation on our entire team. A FBI investigation on each of us saying that we're suspected of leaking, which is a federal offense, which they will put you in prison for. And along the way, he's saying stuff like, oh, this is a David and Goliath situation. 
Why? Because he saw that we had a team big enough to win, and he saw the defense with, with uh, Eric Nelson and his assistant. And he said, that's David and Goliath. I'm like, if you believe that's the David and Goliath situation, then you don't get it, man. The David and Goliath was the man who was under the knee. That's the David and Goliath. And then there was another federal judge who tried the federal case in St. Paul. He says, this is David and Goliath. This is unfair. Uh, and I was a judge in, in Srebrenica, Croatia, Southern Europe, where it's a war zone area. I was a judge. You know, I went over there to help them deal with rule of law issues over there. And there was a lot of injustice. We're trying to help them set up democracies. And I think this prosecution of Derek Chauvin is, as, is, is almost as unjust as that. On the record, it's in the book. So these are the judges. I mean, there's this joke. What's the difference between God and a federal district court judge? God doesn't think he's a federal district court judge. But a federal district court judge thinks he's God, right? And they act, and they act like that. And, and so what I'm saying is if you just look at from the, 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 the law, I mean, a lot of times there's cases that happen that really somebody should be charged for, but you, as a lawyer, you cannot file a case that you know is going to be dismissed. You can lose your license for that under something called Rule 11. And yet the law is written so poorly that as long as an officer can say, I, I was in reasonable fear of my life. I mean, the, we, the way we won this case is like, you look pretty comfortable sitting there on top of George Floyd's neck. Oh, wait a minute. You're over here, you think you need a taser. I mean, how could you be acting reasonably if you had a Glock 9 millimeter in your hand and you didn't know it because you thought you had a taser? Is it reasonable to have a deadly firearm in your hand and not even be aware of it? That's how we won. But why didn't Adam Toledo get charged? I know a lot of y'all be like, yeah, kill this 13-year-old boy. Because Adam Toledo was running, he dipped behind the fence, and he came out with nothing, and he was shot almost within a second. The officer says, I didn't have enough time to see. And, you know, but you can see there's nothing in Adam Toledo's hands. The officer says, it all happened too fast. So he's not held accountable. You understand? The law is not designed to make the system act responsibly and protect life. So what, it, so what is happening with the George Floyd Policing Act? Nothing. And there's a guy running, so Shonda asked about the George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Karen Bass, who was in Congress, now is the mayor of Los Angeles, fought like hell to get it passed through the House. Even good old Cory Booker did what he could, senator from New Jersey, to get it through. But then, one particular person running for president who acted like he wanted to pass something, killed it, and that person's name is Tim Scott. And so Tim Scott was acting like, oh yeah, we're gonna do something, but he, he decided not to do anything, and that's why the George Floyd Justice Policing Act is not passed today. And let me tell you, the George Floyd Justice Policing Act would have done a lot of good things. You all have heard of Tamir Rice, have you not? 12-year-old kid. Somebody says, I saw a kid at the playground with a gun, but I think it's a water pistol. That's what is on the 911 tape. But I think it's not, I think it's a water pistol, it's a toy gun. 
This cop jumps out and within like 12 seconds shoots him down. This cop was applying for a police officer position in a local suburb. The local suburb says he's mentally unfit to be a police officer. No, thank you. Cleveland says, we'll take him. And within a few months, he's murdering 12-year-old kids. So Keith, one of, the, one of the recommendations that we made when we were at the table together with the Police Deadly Force Task Team was that um, the psychological testing that occurs for peace officers happens at the point of hire. It doesn't happen again unless there's a critical or deadly incident. So what we had recommended is that it happens every three or four years as a matter of making sure that they are fit for policing our community. One of, go ahead, do you wanna say something? I think that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. I mean, look, uh, if you're a pilot, there's a lot of testing you have to do. And, you know, look, if your day, if your day is comprised of running from critical incident to critical incident and you get stressed out doing it, maybe you should do some check-ins to make sure you're ready to do this. I was talking to a friend of mine just a moment ago who was saying, you know, these, these, uh, these, some of these school officers pull a shift at night, show up at 7 a.m. to be a, a school police officer. Then after they get done, go back and do a shift. Yeah. Are you ready to deal with a, with a bratty 12-year-old who doesn't want to listen to you? Aren't you? Isn't, aren't you, unless you're, if you're an ordinary person, you're probably pretty on edge if you're pulling that kind of schedule. And yet, you saw the other, a few months ago, they're pulling all kinds of overtime. In a job when you have to be at your most patient, they're pulling 18-hour days, day after day after day, because the overtime money is good. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that they do. We do need to think about making sure that the people who we're asking to do this job are ready to do this job. Yeah. The other thing um, that I was uh, very proud of watching the trial was the independent investigative unit of the BCA, yeah. which was a recommendation that came out of the task force that we were part of. Can you share a little bit about what that was? Well, here's the, here's the reality. Everybody in this room has friends, loved ones, people who they know. Officers do too. Of course they do. They're people. And so if the same department where the shooting, where the critical incident, the killing happened, is investigating the person who did that, all of your doubts will be resolved in favor of your colleague, your friend, the person you know. And if they're not, the, the, the least that's gonna happen is you won't be invited to the annual picnic. The least that will happen, the worst that can happen is well, what happened to Carrie L. Horn? Y'all ever heard of her? Carrie L. Horn, she and, was a Buffalo police officer. She and her partner walked into a house, made their arrest. She walks out with the suspect, cuffed behind his back, and she knows that it's not my job to punish you, it's my job to make the arrest because there's probable cause you committed a crime. Fine. She noticed that he doesn't come in, out with her, and she goes in there, she sees that he is pounding on a cuffed suspect. She intervenes to stop it. This cop punches her, his colleague. She punches back. 
But then she says, oh, you know, when we get down to the station, I'm going to tell the sergeant what you did. You're going to be in a lot of trouble for hitting me. This is going to be a problem. Oh, there was a problem, all right. Guesses. Who got fired? Who lost their pension? She did. She had to fight for 15 years to get her pension back. What I'm saying is, you know, we've got to create an environment where the good guys get promoted and rewarded and the bad ones get fired and even sometimes prosecuted. Yeah. The problem is the racists and the bullies don't have to don't have to deal, don't have to worry. I mean, Bob Kroll, the head of the union, is boasting about how he had 28 or so complaints. He's on the radio talking big stuff. Well, he's out of there now. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> he's on suspension for about 10 years. So I want to see if there's any questions from the audience. So we got the DOJ here in town, and they're having listening sessions, usually pretty obscure places, I'm afraid. I'm wondering, Keith, what you are thinking about what that consent decree, just some things about what that consent decree needs to accomplish. The first thing it needs is we need a system of accountability. And so what, and, and I'm not talking about, but look, and it's not criminal. There's a lot of wrong things. There's a lot of bad things happen before it's a crime. Think about all the bad things that are not crimes. Lying, it's not a crime. You know what I mean? There's a lot of bad things that are not a crime. So, do, so we can't rely on the criminal justice system because that's when, that's when you get to the extreme where we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The real thing we need is administrative accountability where people are getting fired. That's gotta happen. Because like, think about this. If Derek Chauvin would have been pulled into the office after he got four excessive force complaints, maybe he would have corrected himself, maybe not. After he got 10, if he'd have just got fired, you know what, this is not for you, you're out. He might be selling insurance, he might be hanging drywall, but he wouldn't be doing 22 years in prison. Let me tell you, you can do addition by subtraction. <laughs> it's not the worst thing in the world for, for somebody who's not cut out for policing to be kicked off the force. You know, and think about being the partner and think about him leading. So like, I am not, I believe that uh, J. Alexander King committed a crime. But I can't deny that he was led astray by Derek Chauvin. What I say is, yeah, Derek Chauvin let you down. You let George Floyd down. And you have to answer for that. So, so but, but like, you got to get these bad officers out, in part because for the sake of the good officers who want to do the job. Now, I know that there's some people think there's no such thing as a good police officer. I don't agree, but I'll say this. There are people who want to do the job right. And in the foreseeable future, there is, there is gonna be somebody in that job. Isn't it better if they are honest, decent, not brutal, not, you know? And so let's do what we can to save somebody who's driving home tonight. Prince, take us home. 
thank you so much, Shonda, and thanks, Keith, for this. I um, wanted to uh, go back to what you said about uh, police officers and holding them accountable and getting rid of the bad apples. And I work in local government, and it's not just police. It's a lot of other departments in local government where you got these people that are causing harm, and they retire with paychecks and pension plans, and us taxpayers are continuing to pay for the pension plans for folks who are retiring and still leaving our communities in bad condition. So the question to you is, what can we as community do to hold even our local and state government uh, employees accountable to the actual change that needs to happen so that it's not another George Floyd and it's not police, but all of the system so that we do have a just economy? You know, you asked probably what might be the most important question. And uh, there's only one answer. And it's simple and it's hard as hell to do. We need mass activism. We need to enliven, wake up, and keep people alert and involved, asking questions, making demands on their government. We need people to hold government generally accountable, not just police. Because as I said before, the vertical system of injustice is not only held in place by police. It also was held in place by restrictive racial covenants, which this neighborhood was known for, by the way read Jim Crow up north, or watch Jim Crow up north. But not only restrictive racial covenants, uh, also uh, uh, inadequate education, also lack of public investment, also uh, inadequate transportation. It, it's a system that maintain vertical hierarchy. And so what I'm saying is, we do need to put pressure on public works. We do need to have adequate transportation systems. There shouldn't be just plowing highways through neighborhoods of color and working class people to get people to the suburbs. We've got to have a change, but you cannot, you, you, first of all, people in the past have made these changes. It's not impossible, but it, has, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of leadership, it takes a lot of cooperation, and we're doing it right now, by the way. We're doing it right, we're doing what needs to be done this very instant by talking over these issues. One of the reasons, Prince, I wrote the book is because I wanted to continue to drive a conversation. And let me just wrap up by saying this. Do you know that police misconduct cases have cost the city of Minneapolis over the last 10 years $100 million? How many homeless people, unhoused people, could be in a home? How, many, how much transportation? How much, how many people, how many, how many, uh, I don't know, you, we could even in, do a small business investment, right? There's so, $100 million. Basically, we've got to convert, and, and at the end of the day, the, changing the police is, will not be done with the police. Changing the police will be done when Minneapolis say, we're gonna cut more people into prosperity. So we're not afraid of our neighbors because they're not desperate and therefore dangerous to us. When we get these guns off the street, by the way, it's not a matter of the right to bear arms, it's about the right to sell arms. Every, every, time, every time there's a shooting, somebody thinks they gotta go out and get a gun to protect themselves. Oh, that's a, somebody's ringing up the JIT cash register right then, right there. So we are in this cycle. I know some of y'all be like, man, ain't nobody giving up my gun. Yeah, but you gotta understand, 
you're being a pawn in the game. They want you to go buy that gun. They hope you use it so you scare somebody else to go get one and they just made some more money. So we've got to, we've got, we need a revolution of values and it will be led by the people. And I'll just tell you that, um, and as and I wrap up, it, great people have changed the world before. And if you doubt it, just look at the tiny little example of those people randomly selected on that corner on May 25th, 2020. They stopped, they did something. When they couldn't do what they needed to do, they whipped out their phones and did the best they could. And then they came back a year later and told the truth about what happened. We can do this. And remember that this was a multicultural fight. Here's the thing. We all, we, we're, I, don't make no mistake, I'm clear. I'm a pr proud black man and I believe in racial justice, but let's just look at the facts for a moment. Yeah, uh, uh, Chauvin was white and Lane was white, but Tao was Hmong and J. Alexander King was a mixed race black man. Oh, and the people protesting. Genevieve Hans is a white woman. Alisa uh, uh, Eiler is a white woman. Alyssa Fernari's a white woman. Donald Williams is a black man. Charles McMillan's a black man. Um, Darnella Frazier is a black, black girl. And so it was a multiracial group that killed George Floyd. It's a multiracial group that fought to try to save George Floyd. And it was a multiracial group that got out in the street and demanded justice for George Floyd. We can't be like Trump who's talking about white supremacy. We fight white supremacy with racial solidarity human solidarity, that's what we do, with, that's how we come back at them. Because we fight fire with water, not fire. Breaking the will, Keith Ellison, breaking the will, thank you so much. This is a conversation about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. People that have thought beyond their own circumstances to care for others, so thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for that book. I read every word of it. <laughs> I read that book. I think you should read the book and Keith will meet you out there to sign your copy. And that's Keith Ellison and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. Once again, to listen and watch the full episode, follow Shonda on Instagram or Twitter, Shonda S. Baker. And the link to watch is in the bio.